you have to learn on your feet. It's much quicker. You don't get a second take. No. <laughs> or a third take. It's, you know, if there's a lion flying past and chasing after a man, you don't say, oh, stop. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get that. I wasn't ready for it. It's done. <laughs> Ever wondered what the creative process is behind the films, TV shows and theatre productions you watch? Well, Crew Chats is a new podcast going behind the scenes and chatting to the crew that help make these productions. I'm Poonam and I usually work in the costume department. Whenever I tell people what I do, they're always fascinated. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to hear more from the wonderful people who work behind the scenes to make the films and shows we all love? Today's guest is Tunji Akin Sahinra, who wasn't sure what he wanted to do as a youngster, but one day stumbled across the French film Day for Night, which captivated him and he knew he wanted to be in the world of filmmaking. Initially wanting to be a director, Jindu went on to study for a degree in stills photography and film from the University of Westminster. While studying, he found the role of cinematographer to be more interesting and decided to pursue this. He went on to get a postgraduate diploma and an MA in film production cinematography from the Northern Film School. Upon graduating, Tunji was asked by a friend from university to help set up a production company in Togo on her behalf and later with his translator went on to film a number of, of documentaries in Benin Republic and Togo. Subsequently Tunji moved to Nigeria and began working across Africa including Uganda, Ghana and Benin amongst others working on a variety of different projects from documentaries, fashion films and feature films including Ajuju which was recently voted one of the best 20 zombie films by IndieWire coming in at number 11. In 2015, Tunji moved back to the UK and has since been teaching at the Northern Film School and Ravensbourne University part-time whilst working as a cinematographer. Tunji has worked on productions such as What Lies Within, O-Town, Dear Woman Child and My Own People, to name a few. Hi, Tunji. Hi, hi, Pinam. Uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Likewise, I'm really excited about our chat. So I'm going to start by asking a question. You're a cinematographer. Um, you've worked on documentaries and films as well and TV productions. What does that involve for you? Would you like me to start from the beginning, from what, what I would do when, yeah. I get, when I get a receiver? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So what happens is I get I get a script or I might, maybe from a, someone who doesn't know you, maybe from a director who doesn't know you, maybe some, somebody who mm. does most of the time in my case it's from somebody who I've worked with before but the first thing I do is I'll read the script and if I like the script I'll say yes I can bring something to it and if I don't like the script then I say it's probably not for me and once I've got that script then I start to read it and I read it just for the story not for anything else not I try and block out anything cinematography from my mind and just read it and get to know the story because as a cinematographer our key task is to tell the story camera lighting and then once that's happened, then I've met the director and, you know, and we've read, then I read the script again and start thinking about ideas about how to shoot it visually. And then what I, what I try to do is get inside the, cinema, the director's head, because that means that you're able to deliver their vision, which mm. is what we do. Cinematographers, we deliver director's visions, yeah. So that's what I try and do. Um, I always ask them for a lot of information. I said, send me anything. Doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it influences your ideas, send it to me. So some people send cartoons, some people talk about films. Some people send uh, pictures, you know, it depends what the film is about. So I get, I get some people send music, uh, colours, all that sort of stuff. And then I kind of like formulate it in my, in my brain um, to try and understand the vision. And sometimes I send, then I send ideas back as well. Uh, about, and then once you've created that vision, that's a hard part, hard part actually. The research. Getting, yeah, 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 the research. And trying to make sure that you're coming from the same page. And you also have to work with the production designer as well. Because it's a production designer and a cinematographer. 
who create the world what these characters live in mm. together. I mean, there's also a soundscape as well and that kind of stuff and music. But it's those, but on screen, it's those two key things that you see. And I'm not talking about hearing what you see because film is always about show, don't tell. Um, so it's those things that you see on screen, and, and there's a very close uh, relationship between the production designer, the director, and the cinematographer. Yeah. And those, so it's really important that we kind of like coordinate and then kind of all sing from the same hymn sheet. So that's probably for a feature film. A bit less for a doc- documentary, I might add. Um, documentaries are a lot more about, uh, again, it's the same thing though, vision. What, how does the director see the story being told? What's their vision? Do they want it to be? It could be something simple as, I want it all handheld camera. Or I want you to put the camera on sticks, on tripod, and it's all very smooth and slow. You know, or you might put it on a gimbal. Because so all of those techniques say something about the story that you're shooting. So it's the same thing. I'm, the reason why I chose uh, one of the films, you know, that um, was one of my favourites, because I'm actually working with the director of one of those films ah. on a documentary. And her, her style is a combination. If she's doing the interview, it's tripod. But the stuff what we call B-roll, where you're running around and filming, you know, the action stuff, is all handheld. So it, it, that's, that's to go back to the point you asked. That's the big thing I do at the beginning. I prep with the director and production designer and find out how they want, what they're look, looking for. And then there's other things that come alongside that. Then you think about who do you want for your crew. So you bring your crew on board. Normally you try and, I try and bring on, um, uh, I have one or two people who are regulars, but I always try and bring on different people. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. You know them, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and give people an opportunity as well. So there's all those things. Then you've got your crew, then you go in your locations, then you organise your kit, you know, and once you've gelled all this together, and then sometimes you have to do testing because uh, you want to know which camera you're going to use, which lenses you're going to use, which lighting style you're going to use. You want to know if I use these lights, are they going to be the ones who are going to do the job and give me the effect and look that I want? So there's all that going on as well. And that can take quite a bit of time. Yeah. Um, locations and finding the right location. Um, so then we've got all this point. We've got this pre This is called a pre-production package. And also at the same time, we're thinking about production, but you're also thinking about post-production as well. Hmm. Um, because um, however the film looks is then it's going to be taken from production into post-production. And you want to make sure that you shoot the film in a way that it can be graded properly or or if you're going to do visual effects, do you, are you shooting on the right cameras? Yeah, because you need to make sure that the camera you're using is able to handle the quality of um, visual effects you might be placing on top of that original image. Mm. Isn't there? So there's all that going on in your head at the same time as well. And essentially, as, as we, as some cinematographers like to say, um, we have to learn. We have to know. We have to know how to manage a team. We have to know how to use the camera effectively. We now have to know how to light, and we have to understand art direction or production design, because we're working with that. And, and we have to know how to then finish that film. Find out, make sure that we know that the finished product um, from production, which goes into post-production, will be, will all come together as yeah. a package. Mm. All that stuff, yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah, um, what I do when I'm sort of getting ready for. No, that role. makes um, complete sense. And like you say, it's a, it sounds like it's a very collaborative approach to, from just yeah. having conversations yeah. with the director and production designer, and then yeah. down to like, working with your crew to see how you can produce yeah. the vision that is required yeah. for this. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted, because obviously you do documentaries as well, and um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a very basic question. Um, what is the difference between a documentary and the filming in terms of, in, from your perspective? Right, so with, with a drama or film, 
you kind of know more or less what you're going to get because you've planned it, you've yeah. storyboarded, you've been planning it for ages, you've gone on locations, you've done all sorts of tests, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. You've worked out your shot list, uh, you've literally worked it down to the, you know, down to what f-stop you're going to you, you'd like to use sometimes and when i mean f-stop i mean the aperture oh okay i was gonna yeah, yeah. you might want to shoot it on a wide aperture because you want the background to be soft or you might want to shoot it on a narrow aperture because you want to see in the distances so you've literally planned it down it's so well planned you more or less know what you're going to get and most cinematographers will most really good experience cinematographers know exactly what what we're going to get what the film looks like publication documentary you know what you want but you don't know what you're going to get when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but think about a documentary. A lot of um, British cinematographers in this country learn filmmaking or learn their, um, that cinematography by doing documentary. Um. Because you have, it's, you have to learn on your feet. It's much quicker. You don't get a second take. No. On, <laughs> or a third take. It's, even though if there's a lion flying past and chasing after a man or something, you don't say, oh, stop. <laughs> I, I didn't get that. I wasn't ready for it. It's dumb, you know. So you have to think on your feet a lot more, and you have to also you have to understand things like light because daylight changes all the time. And you know, as you know now, it's right now it's overcast and flat. And what does that look like? And then you get sunlight. How do you operate under in sunlight when the sun's above, directly above your head, or when the sun's behind you, or when the sun's you know? How do you get the best shots when the sun's up? You know, in, rising in the morning and sinking at, at night. So all those things are great because you have to work with what you've got. We can't control daylight. We just have to work yes. with it. Um, just like we can't control the situations but you know, when working on a documentary, we have to kind of work w- with them. So it's kind of like an organic process. So that would say, I would say it's, it's different. It's highly planned and when you, you plan it and you, you hope that your plans work, but you just don't know what you're going to get. Do you get a bit of a adrenaline rush? Might not be the right answer, right like terminology to use, but is there something... I don't know, some a buzz that you get from that kind of unknownness to it. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it can be a bit, bit too much because when you're <laughs> operating, well, I operate as a documentary cameraman. Um, I'm kind of operating one, so I've got one eye through the viewfinder looking at the action, okay? But I've got one eye kind of like, this sounds really weird, I sound like some kind of um, oddball, but I've got one <laughs> no. eye around thinking, oh, there's another piece of action over there. Oh, that's going to make a great shot. So you really, you want to, you really need to get the shot you're doing at the, at the time because you need enough time of, you need enough of that shot in order for it to be able to um, edit it into the into the film. And more to the point, it might be a really important shot, so you don't want to lose it. But at the same time, I think that is such a great shot. But I, you know, so you're always thinking, oh, I want to get that shot now, and then, oh, oh my god, there's another great shot. And so your mind is always, you're always seeing great, um, you know. Um, great shots and stuff which will contribute to the story and that's quite a buzz in that because it's, it's quite a challenge it's a bit of an it's a bit of an, it's an unknown adventure so I like that quote that um, Forrest Gump quote life is like a box of chocolates but you never know what you're going to get next kind of <laughs> <laughs> with camera you just think you never know what you're going to get next and the situations can unfold before you so I, I was shooting with this um, recently not recently about a year and a half ago we was shooting in Nigeria it was about the documentary I'm working on at the moment is about the Chinese influence in Africa. So, oh wow, shooting this um, it's still it's kind of come to a standstill because of um, Corona, yeah, travel is a big issue over there. Um, but we were shooting this scene whereby um, the Chinese construction workers and who were working alongside the Nigerians were building a road, and they had to build a road um, alongside this land 
farmland owned by the Nigerians. And the Nigerians didn't trust the Chinese and were under the impression that they were going to um, destroy the land. So they all gathered there. Wow. The Chinese had gone along with their Nigerian, uh, for want of a better word, um, fixer, the guy who kind of like was the... The in-between person. The in-between guy, yeah. And so... You know, and then the police turned up, and it was a little bit of, you know, and first of all, it was just meant to be, oh, we're just going to have a discussion, we're going to tell you what we're going to do, and there's going to be no harm to your land. But when, but the locals are very, very suspicious. Of course. A little bit tense, yeah. yeah. And so, and this is big caterpillar going up and down the road, and these Nigerians got the situation became quite tense. And we just thought it was going to be a discussion between, you know, the elders and the, the guy who worked there. But it, it turned into a quite tense situation. But, but it, I, mean, I mean, it calmed down after a while. And, and so there was lots of footage to shoot because it wasn't what we were expecting. Um, but it turned out that way. So, and, and this situation just unfolded before your eyes kind of thing. I said, okay, there's going to be a bit of action here. So you're just running around trying to get, you know, get the, um, to get the coverage and not miss out on any of the action because it makes, you know... It makes good it makes, watching, I guess. <laughs> it makes, what, what, yeah, yeah. And it, and, and it adds, brings conflict to your documentary. And documentary is always, always about some kind of conflict and then a resolution at the end of it. Yeah. That's, an, that's interesting, actually. I guess, but in, in your situation, in your team situation in that instance, yeah. there, I guess there's a fine line between kind of shooting as a the overall story arc of, you know, the, whatever is going on in front of you and also then becoming maybe too involved. Did the, did the people that were in this in the midst of this discussion yeah. get a bit like, what are you guys doing here? Do you need to be... Yeah, there's a fine line and how do you guys kind of tread it, I guess, is my question. Yeah, it's, good, it's a good point. I mean, in most in a lot of the cases, you will have someone who's uh, a fixer, actually, uh-huh. uh, which I've done many times myself. But the Brit, we call it a fixer in the UK. I think the Americans like, like to call it a location producer because they love titles. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> not like, we're not fussy over here. Yeah, <laughs> Someone said to me, if you said fixer in the United States, it sounds really dodgy, like you're about to have someone assassinated or something. Like oh, that. yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, so normally a fixer will go along and meet with the people you want to talk. Or sometimes a producer or director will go along as well to meet those people in advance. Oh, okay. Okay, and discuss what the I, you know, what, what it is you want your what the story's about, and what you'd like to say to them, what you'd like to see them doing. Um, you would always do that, mostly in advance. Oh. Um, and then you will go back a few days later and shoot. So, for instance, I was working on, and as a fixer, I worked on the series of BBC Three, Slum Survivors, it was called. Oh, okay. And basically it was about, they selected um, some kids, some young people from the United Kingdom, and sent them out to work in... Indonesia, Nigeria, and I think the other country might have been India. And what they did is, so they had to go and work with a, a chef in Indonesia, but one of those street 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 restaurants. restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indonesia. Uh, a plumber in India. Okay. Wow. And they sent three guys to Nigeria to work as mechanics. Ah. Okay. And so my job as location fixer father was literally find find the locations, find the garage. Where these, where these guys are going to work and find the, literally I was casting and find and make sure that the people who were in that garage were the kind of people who would look great on camera and would be amenable to having these three foreigners come over and work, you know, and so they say, so because it makes great filming, you know. Yeah. yeah. So that was my job. And I was doing that at least a month before BBC turned, team turned up. And when they did turn up, they only sent an advance party of the director, the production manager, and the producer to also do some location research to make sure that they liked the locations we had and to make sure that they liked the people we use in the cast, so to speak. Yeah. You know, 
yeah, not, not like a feature from class, but a cast, yeah. So, uh, so meanwhile, they went back off back to, um, to London. I prepped all those guys and said, this is what's going to happen, you know. Um, and then a week later, they came back and shot. I think it was two weeks they came and shot. But these guys were already prepared for it. Already. Uh, so they, they were prepared, prepared to be filmed, but they still didn't know what we were going to get on camera because um, so everything wasn't going to be quite organic and they were listening. Yeah. And also, they brought over these three guys from England who never, ever set foot in Africa. So they suddenly landed in the, what most people will call heart of Africa, in Lagos, Nigeria, and suddenly found themselves in this situation. So we didn't know what we were going to get yet because we didn't know how the kids were going to react to being in this kind of in this country. We didn't know how the Nigerians going to react having three young white kids coming into their you know yeah. So in terms of documentary, you can sometimes the camera you can be there with the camera and there won't be no issue because the people already know you're going to be there. But on a, also another side to that is that even if you are there with the camera, you still try to be as unobtrusive as you can because mm. it's not about the camera it's about what's happening in front of the camera how how do you do that it's really hard <laughs> you um because you're always moving around you're trying to find the right angles you know but you try to well, me, me like for instance on myself i'm very quiet when i'm moving around and I, I move quite gently i sort of like try and take angles whereby i'm not in the um anybody's eye line mm. things so they can't can't see me um after a while you'll realize that the people that you're working with, the subjects of the document, you'll get used to the camera anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, they get used to it. After a while, they get used to it. They don't even see it. And if they do yeah. see it, sometimes it's because they just want to talk to the camera. But they're not really talking to the camera. They're talking to the audience who will watch them afterwards. So oh, sometimes, you, yeah, some, yeah, sometimes it, the camera doesn't matter anymore. It's gone. Those are the best times. I bet, yeah, I can imagine you get a natural yeah, response. You, you get a natural yeah. response to the camera. Or they know the camera's there, but it's not... But it's not about the camera. It's not about that physical, mechanical, electronic black box. It's about the relationship between the subject and the audience. And so they have a conversation with the audience and the camera is just kind of like the conduit for that conversation. Mm. And those are the best uh, kind of like uh, reactions between uh, the subject. That's so um, interesting. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm, in fairness, I don't watch many documentaries, but when I, when you do watch them, there is some, I think they're very powerful. Um, yeah. This, it's a way of getting across more often than not a very factual experience to an audience which is not privy to that experience. And there's something, it's in a very, um, sometimes a raw experience actually yeah. as well of what actually is happening in that. And I think you kind of, in the back of your head, you do sometimes, at least I've wondered, are people playing up to the camera? But I guess what you say is true is yeah. that they, kind of it just becomes part of the landscape yeah yeah absolutely. yeah yeah um yeah. how did you get into what you do so um it was really funny actually and i've got quite a few siblings i've got five other siblings and that's a kick and, and I, as you know certainly you know nigerians but nigerians um your parents always tell you what job you're going to do oh this i think it's exactly the same with asians <laughs> right, I, I did that with my brothers and sisters you're going to be a doctor you're going to be a chemist you're going to be a lawyer they got to me and thought went ah and i didn't have a clue either and my father was an electrical engineer and i thought oh i want to be an engineer but i didn't really and i think he knew i didn't want to be one really so i didn't really know what i wanted to do at, at school until one Day, I was watching a film called um, Day for Night, yeah. which is a French New Wave film. Is it New Wave? French film, anyway, uh, made by Francois Truffaut. Um, or rather, I think he was in it. It was a film about a film being made, oh. about film production, and there was all the drama. Very meta. <laughs> all, but, very meta. And all, and all the drama which went about making that film. It was, it was drama. 
and I was fascinated by it. I just remember sitting, I don't even know how I came across it actually. Um, and I just remember just being fascinated by it, thinking, that's brilliant. That's what I want to do. Wow. But I, at the time, I wanted to be, um, for some silly reason, I wanted to be a director. I don't know why. Um, way too hard. Glamorous is glamorous. Yeah, they, 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 get all the, um, they get all applauded, but we know it does all the work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I want to, they said that, and I wanted to be a director. And then, so I started, you know, looking into being a director and how to get into a film school. And that was a long time ago, and there weren't many film schools, and it was very difficult to get in, particularly if you didn't fit, you know, a particular image thing so it wasn't wasn't really happening but but for some reason I don't know why I decided to end up doing photography huh. so I ended up, yeah so I ended up doing a still photography diploma and then I did a degree in photography I did a degree in photography and film and I think it was when I was at university that I suddenly realized that because we had to shoot a film for as part of our graduation but I had something for cinematography stuff's quite fun and I suddenly found myself switching from stores photography I used to do a lot of documentary stuff, over to film. So then I went on to film school, which is in Leeds, Northern Film School. Mm. Did a postgraduate diploma and an MA. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, in cinematography. And um, while I was there, I met, um, there was a, another producer there. She was also um, from Nigerian background. Um, she was trained to be a producer. And she was had a lot of stuff going on in, in Africa. And she said to me, um, look, I want to set up a production company in Togo. It's a small little country in between uh, Benin and Ghana. I'd always, always had an interest in, in Africa. My father had always in, sort of like ingrained that interest when we were kids. So mm-hmm. I'd always had an interest in Nigeria and Africa anyway. So, so yeah, yeah, okay, I'll go and do it. So I went off to Togo for a couple of months and set up his office. And while I was there, I learned a lot. And thought there's so much stuff you can shoot, shoot on this continent. And I met a friend, um, my translator actually, because I don't speak any French. But he spoke really good English. Um, although he told told me years later that when he first met me, he didn't understand the word I was saying. <laughs> um, I haven't managed to translate, but anyway, um, he now speaks excellent English and is that doctor, literally a doctor of English. Um, so when I left that company, um, I saw kept in contact with my friend, whose name is Paul, and we started shooting documentaries, self-funded documentaries. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so we shot in Togo, and he was from Benin, which was next door to Togo. Um, so we, I mean, we shot some stuff in Benin and it was all out of our own money we just shot stuff yeah wow and then but at the same time I was people who began to know me as someone who can shoot who likes to shoot in Africa and so I was getting I was just getting other work and I getting stuff I think and I then got a commission from the Commonwealth Broadcast Association to shoot another documentary in Lagos called This Is Lagos and that was fun and then I shot something in Senegal and then I shot some stuff and it just kind of built up from then so yeah I just kind of like people know that I like shooting in Africa and if there's something going on there they some will come and ask me to come and shoot there really but I but I really enjoy it I like I like the um I like being there um I won't ask you more questions about that but then you then you came back here and then you yeah um you went back didn't you for a couple of years as well that's right I moved um because career-wise, um, in terms of cinematography, it wasn't really happening over here. Very, I mean, it's very competitive, and there's also you have to. There's lots of obstacles you have to overcome. Um, as I always say, if your face doesn't fit, there's a lot of obstacles you have to come overcome in the industry in this country. Uh, I was get, and I was, I was teaching at university, which was fine. And I was doing a lot of other teaching. I was teaching, literally teaching kids how to do um, basic animation oh. as well, and teaching, teaching video production to. Uh, kids at the schools and and um youth centers and that kind of stuff but filmmaking and making a few short films here and there 
I mean, back, I say for you, I, I had a count of short films I made about, um, or worked on, uh, somewhere in the range of between 20 and 30. Wow, that's not a few. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, you don't actually realise it until you start going back on it. Oh, yeah, I remember that film. Oh, God, and that one as well. <laughs> um, also reminds you how, how old you are as well. But, so, I, anyway, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to head off to Nigeria. I had a base there. Um, my mum had a flat there and um and also I had a lot of contacts because I was always going in and out of Nigeria and it had the second largest film industry in the world Nollywood yeah Nollywood yeah. and they were looking out for they were looking out for people who who, who um had experience and it was funny because so I said okay I'm going to pack the bags um and I don't know how it I mean I told people I was going I hadn't even got on the plane to Nigeria and I was being offered work Oh, wow. in Nigeria. I literally got off the plane, didn't have time to go find my mum's flat. I got off the plane, put my suitcases into all eight of them, into a um, hotel room, went straight down to the video production company, hired a kit, and then the following day got on a plane and flew out to Ghana to shoot some just documentary um, stuff for the Africa channel. Wow. In the UK. Yeah, yeah. And then, then after that, once people knew I was back and I knew a lot of people, I just started shooting all sorts of stuff. I shot art, fashion films. I think I must be the only person to have shot fashion films in Nigeria because they're not big. And I, yeah, shot some fashion films. Shot three feature films, television series, short films, which I can't even remember which ones they are, documentaries in Nigeria, I don't know, promos, news stuff. Everything. <laughs> yeah, just went on with it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't always, it wasn't always busy. And I, I actually, uh, one year, I mean, it was one time I was thinking, mm. it, got, it, gets really, it got really quiet. And I was literally about to come back to England. Uh, and then somebody said to me, well, I've got a job for you. Um, come and work, manage my art gallery. So I ended up managing the largest art gallery in West Africa for a year. Wow. As well as, and then taking time out to go and shoot films. And, wow. Yeah, it's hilarious. You've had a wealth of experience, then, not just in the in the in the film, well, in the, not just the film, the film and documentary world. Then goes beyond that artistic world. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, it was quite. It was. It was actually the, the two kind of tied in together, actually, and it was a brilliant, absolutely amazing art gallery. Uh, it was, it's called the Nikkei Art Gallery, and, and owned by this um, artist called um, Nikkei um, Okundaye. She's a brilliant, brilliant artist. She can do anything. It doesn't matter what. I should check her out. Yeah. Um, then you you came back here, didn't you? Yeah. So after uh, I came back at twenty in twenty fifteen, I came back and I got my job back at the Northern Film School because I have actually been working there since two thousand and two as a visiting lecturer. Wow. And you've obviously been working in the industry since coming yeah. back here as well. Then. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I have. Yes. Yeah, yeah. On various projects. Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of speak about your experience when you um, travelled to Nigeria and you filmed across yeah. the continent of Africa I um I feel like there's a narrative sometimes that comes from the uh continent of Africa and, and certain yeah. nations in Africa um that yeah. we in the western world have a perceived idea of how things are right. in those nations yeah. and yeah. often I think if people delve a bit deeper or if they read the literature yeah. that yeah. comes out or watching say documentaries or shorts that come out of um Africa as well that you your eyes are open to the fact that there's a thriving arts culture and also it's a very tricky thing people just refer to Africa as just one block and it's not it's a it's a number of nations and within those nations there's multiple cultures like anywhere in the world but it gets this kind of title of just Africa with people and I yeah even that I think there's a whole other conversation in itself yeah. but how is that the importance sorry okay it's the importance of storytelling 
from yeah. countries in Africa where yeah. it's not just the narrative that we get, I want to use the word get fed through certain yeah. media streams. Um, yeah, which is true. yeah, the importance of storytelling and from the actual nations there, but also say for, for example, from you going over there as well and yeah, working in that industry. Uh, I think what you're asking me is how do I, um, what's my, how do I portray Africa uh, when I'm yeah. filming and how do I tell, how do I choose to tell the stories about Africa and particularly which country, depending on which country I'm in, um, in comparison to the narrative which has been fed to us by the uh, um, other social, uh, other networks. And other, yeah. 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 Good question. Um, so it's funny you should mention that because a few days, for some reason I was thinking about it a few days, I was filling out an application form for BBC, uh, something to do with the BBC, uh, and there was a question in there, um, I can't remember what the question was, but it made, anyway, what, it made me think about one of the things, promises I made to myself when I started filming in Africa, and some of the things which I saw what other networks and other foreign media were doing when they filmed on, on the continent in different countries. One of the things they used to do is they, whenever they were shooting an, an anybody in Africa, they you put the camera and they'd point the camera down at them. Mm. And if you point the camera down at somebody, it says that they're weak or that they're re, uh, relying or helpless. Okay, and consistently, it was a consistent, consistent. It was deliberately done because whenever you press, press the camera down at somebody, it makes them look weak. We, we talk we, on the same eye line, mm. subject level, we're equals. You point up, it makes them look powerful. Never ever saw the camera on rarely on eye level, subject level, and always consistently mm-hmm. looking down. And I remember saying to myself, I'm never, ever going to shoot in, Af- in, in Africa like that. I never have. So one of the first things I did was, if we're going to start to control or take responsibility for our mm-hmm. own narrative from shooting in Africa, then we have to be the, then we have to think about how we sh- portray our, ourselves and portray yeah. our own people and tell our, and effectively yeah. tell our own stories. So, Yes, you're right. So when I, I mean, for instance, I give you an example, another example. When I, when I'm fixing, sometimes I get some companies will come and ask me, "Oh, we want to tell this story about Nigeria. I want to do that about Nigeria." And I say, "Where do you want to go to? Just what locations are you thinking of?" Oh, we'd like to see some slums. And I'm like, "Why? Mm. Why do you need to go to a slum to shoot your film?" Oh, we don't. And they come up with things like, "Oh, well, we're not. We just want to show you know how powerful these slums are and how strong these people are." And I'm like, absolutely. No chance. Yeah. I'm not involved. But that's all they want to do is go. To, if you can't, if you come need to come to Nigeria to come and you know, shoot in slums and find your characters in slums, then I'm, yeah. I'm not your person. So in, in that, that's um, that's my own small way of you know controlling. Yeah, of course. How how the stories are portrayed, and also like you said, that everybody thinks that Africa's one block when they actually it's. Well, let me just start with Nigeria. Nigeria alone, 250 tribes, 500 languages and dialects. Wow. Which means there's more, there's more diversity in, in Nigeria than there is in the whole of Europe. Wow. Yeah. People don't realise that. And, they, and it's different. They dress differently. They talk differently. I mean, there's a village in Nigeria where the men speak one language and the women speak another. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's literally like, that's the first thing. I don't, I don't even get me started on Africa. 56 countries, 1.3 billion people and 2,000 languages. So, um, yeah, so you're right. And each country is so different from you know so when you get you know filming in uganda is not, not like filming in senegal they're completely different people and you have to and also you have to learn that as well even as a 
myself as an African or at least um, African origin. I don't go into Kenya thinking that because I'm I'm big to Kenya because I'm a Nigerian that I know think about yeah. Kenya because I don't. Yeah. So I learn I learn things about those countries when I go there before I get there and while I'm there as mm. well. So you have to know how to behave in those countries because they're all very different. And mm. like I said, everyone thinks Africa's one block landmass. Yeah, it is one massive landmass. It's the second largest continent on the face of the planet, but it's a very complex um, and diverse uh, continent. Yeah. And each village or each town tells its own story. And I, and I always treat it like if I'm in Kenya, I'm in Kenya. I'm not in Africa. I'm in Kenya, which just happens to be part of Africa. Really important to tell those, tell those stories from that, from that viewpoint. Yeah. Get people to understand. I think you make a very pertinent point it is really really important to tell um, stories from different differing viewpoints if you're in those countries and you with any with any I guess with any country and anywhere in the world you want to try and tell um, stories that are that are true to the actual experience of those people yeah like you say it's really important to take control of that um, narrative and change the direction and the way that people view certain things and be, be the gatekeepers um, as well. Be the gatekeepers um, for storytelling. Um, otherwise, that narrative won't change. In, and, and in any way, small, which in any way you can really, whether it be, um, you know, you're behind the camera, or you're writing the story. And therefore, it um, opens, it gives people another perspective on... Um, a nation, um, a culture, which otherwise they wouldn't have had. And I think that's really important um, because storytelling has the power to do that. It's one of the great powers, I guess, that it has. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's the beauty of, I guess, the beauty of what you do. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and the differences and, yeah. Um, So, um, hardest kind of shot to film? Ah, um, I think the, the hardest shot I ever did was when I was shooting this film called o, uh, shooting for the same director of a Juju. We shot this gangster film called O Town, mm. and and um, he had this really strange. It was an interesting shot, but what I had to do was um, there were uh, three guys standing in a semicircle, and there were quite there was one either side and one in the middle, and what I had to do was literally operate the camera in a huge semicircle. So I had to start literally on the floor, come up, come around, follow them across, get all their faces in like that, and then come back down again, um, come up, then follow them for our entire scene. <laughs> you must have been tired. I think. We never work together again. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's what he made me do. Um, I still watch, look back at it. I watch it on the film now and thinking, yeah, it didn't quite work. But, you know, um, yeah. He wanted it. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, also, but it's not, I mean, there's, there's complicated stuff. I mean, doing stuff on Steadicam, most professionals will tell you that uh, there's some complicated Steadicam shots are quite difficult. Jib shots, you know, complicated. I mean, nowadays, there's just so many things you can do with, with, uh, with a camera anyway you know shots where the camera comes right down on a, on a wire and goes straight down through the staircase stairwell and shoots down like that and that's all set up on a, on a kind of like a pulley system or cable cable wire oh. shoots down like that so shooting underwater is quite difficult as well i've done a very small bit of filming underwater 
uh, Minority Film School. Um, and the most difficult part actually is, or at least the most difficult part that the director found was actually not floating to the surface all the time. Which is, right, yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't, and we kept saying to her, no, leave out, and so you'll sing. She just didn't quite get it. And she kept, <laughs> she tried to direct the actors and we just see her float to the surface every year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the name she kill me, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> She'll stay nameless. <laughs> um, and then I guess my next question would be, what inspires you? That's a good question. Um, what inspires me is always finding something new to do. Yeah. So there's a George Bernard Shaw quote, which I can't quite remember the quote off the top of my head, but he's he said that he when he dies he doesn't want to he wants to feel like he's used up every second of his life to do something really useful. Um, oh. Yeah, I have to find it. It's a lot. Of, I've come across it about 12 years, 12, 13 years ago in this office. I just saw it on the wall and read it. And normally I just read quotes and think, yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> some, you know, some interesting quotes. But that particular one was really, it was poignant. It's always stuck in my mind. And so mm. it's always just finding, finding interesting things to do. Um, I mean, there's, you know, if I'm fascinated by it, then I get involved. I think that's uh, very mm. pertinent because um, I think our leg, I guess the term is like legacy for all of us. I don't just mean quote unquote famous or in the kind of in the public eye. You sort of do at some point, I think, think what am I? I think one of the questions I always ask is how do you think people remember you when you're no longer here? Yeah. And I think that question, it kind of makes you really analyze and think about what you're doing. Yeah. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, and how you use your like how you use your time while you're here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like eighty years sounds like a long time, or whatever. It's how when everybody dies, whatever. But uh, but eventually, eighty years will come. Mm. You want to look back in your life and say, "Well, what did I do? Do it, do it." I mean, it's not like I'm you know desperate to think when I get to eighty, I've got to look back in my life and didn't do anything. But I think that while you're here, it's you know you make the most of it. Somebody once said, um, "It's your." God-given duty to use whatever talents you've got while you're here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I like that. That's nice. Mm. Um, so that brings me on to my final question, which cool. is what are your three favourite to watch recommendations? Right. So um, I'll start with a documentary first, which is One Child Nation, which um, was, I think it made quite a few waves last year. I don't know if you've seen it. Any. I haven't seen it, but um, I've definitely heard of it. Very, very powerful documentary about when the Chinese brought in a policy of when they wanted to have some control over the population growth, said you can only have one child. Yeah. Which, as you well know, is, has so many repercussions. And so the repercussions yeah. have on that was that everybody wanted a boy as the first. And when they had a girl, they got rid of a girl. Okay. In one case, it was a story, part of that story, there was the, the family had twins, two twin oh. girls, and they kept one twin and sent the other twin off to live in the States to be adopted by another family. So then there's this part oh. where the two twins actually meet. They've never seen each other for 16 years. And these two oh, wow. twins, one from Japan and one from America, meet. So it's, it's a really p- powerful story about how it affected the people who lived there at the time. And as they, they said, we had no choice. That's what we had to do. And then all the decisions they made about having children or getting rid of children or keeping the boy. So it's a bit of an eye-opener, strong, really strong, very powerful film. And, and, um, and that same director I'm working with on the... Or, there's two directors and I'm working with one of the directors on her film about the Chinese in Africa um, Do you, what's the name of that film sorry has it been titled yet not yet no, oh, no okay. I mean, it's just got a working title with Chinese in Chinese in Africa but yeah, we haven't okay. and we're still in person I think we've got a lot more to shoot yet yeah, uh, okay. like 
I think my second choice was a border town. Now, I'm a big fan of Scandinavian and TV drama. Have you seen the um, the bridge? Is it the bridge? I've seen the bridge. Yeah. First season being like yeah. incredible. Um, sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> so, you, so you know, so you know what I'm talking about then. So yeah, so I think um, border town. It takes place in a, um, a, a Finnish town, which is which is completely unpronounceable, um, but sits on a, a border with um, Lithuania. So it's on the Lithuanian border, but it's about this um, cop, remarkable ability to be able to solve crimes, but he's um, Asperger's and autistic. Okay, uh, okay. yeah. And, and anyway, take, everything takes place in this, and he's kind of the, the, the suitable one, and he hangs out with this um, Russian cop, who's the one that battles everybody, gets in the way kind of thing. But they still, <sighs> they're constantly solving these complicated murders, and it's really intense. It's very deadpan. It doesn't have that kind of over drama like we have in the what you watch in the states you know it's very sort of paced out um it's normally shot in the winter and it's cold and it's bleak and it's um but totally under, under very understated mm. and very mysterious yeah and very compelling i mean you, you you know you're trying to work out who did what and how's he going to solve the mystery but it's it's really good and i'm a big fan of scandinavian any kind of scandinavian drama yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's that sounds like a good watch yeah. Um, and what was your third watch? Um, the third watch was called um, Deadly Crime, which I came across during the lock- lockdown. Um, it was a six-part series. It's based mm. on a true story. And it was about um, that, the, the girl and the boyfriend who were, who were on a bus going home, but then were raped by um, guys on the coat, on the coat, and then beaten up and dumped inside of the street mm. and left to die. And, but the story then focuses on the police commissioner, a, f- a female police commissioner who goes out of her way to track, and they uh, track these guys um, down, and they had something like a week to get to get them. Oh wow! Because, yeah, and um, because at the time there was a, the side story to that was that there was a, um, a an election going on, they wanted to get rid of the commissioner and bring their own people. Oh. So that was a side story, but it also was tracking down these criminals, uh, and also the, the girl's story because um, she was really severely. Uh, damage those guys were kind of you know it was a brilliant compelling story really and and the cast the, the lady who plays the company what her name is now plays the commissioner was just she's brilliant very believable very strong performances very well shot again none of this kind of like will do respect to the usa but not over glamorized and yeah but understated and it was about mm. the story yeah really strong storytelling but yeah i daddy crime i've I've heard of and actually is i think was on my netflix to to watch list so i should also check that out um thank you tinji for your recommendations and thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been really really interesting i've really enjoyed it you're welcome thank you i have enjoyed it thank you Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tunji. Tune in next week, which will be my final episode for this season where I speak to costume designer Lindy Hemming. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.